Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. The film Oppenheimer is looking to be one of the biggest cultural phenomena of 2023. Having already taken in more than $500 million at the box office since its release just three weeks ago. Here at Physics World, we're still musing over the film's unexpected success. And later in the podcast, I chat with my colleague Mateen Durrani about our impressions of this physics blockbuster. But first, we delve into a topic that we know is a favorite of many of our listeners, units of measurement. Physics World's Margaret Harris chats with a Finnish social scientist about body-based units of measurement and how they arose out of the development of early technologies such as skis, kayaks, and spears. Physicists love units of measurements. Whether it's standard SI units, the CGS system, or maybe quirkier units like the barn for data or the banana equivalent dose for radiation, it seems like there's an endless fascination with the units that scientists have invented to help understand and explain our world. My guest today is coming at this topic from a different perspective. His name is Ropa Karunen. He's a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Helsinki in Finland. And as a social scientist, he's interested in how humans in different cultures find solutions to everyday problems. And of course, one of those everyday problems is measurements. Hello, Ropa. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. So I understand that one of the earliest solutions to everyday measurement problems is what you and your colleagues call body-based units of measurement. Maybe you could just begin by explaining to, to our listeners what a body-based unit of measurement is. Right, sure. So what we call body-based units of measure are those units that are used, like literally using the human body, as in using your own hand span as a unit of measure. So to be clear, and this is, I think, the most common misunderstanding of our research papers so far, we're not talking about like the standardized foot or the standardized fathom. Those units presumably originated from someone's foot or someone's arm span, but... yeah. Yeah, they did. They originated quite certainly from the use of the actual human body, but since then they have been standardized. So the foot, for instance, has been standardized at least since the Roman times and possibly even much earlier. So you looked at body-based units and I think it was 186 different cultures across the world. What are some of the most common units across this huge, diverse data set? Right. So yeah, like you said, it's definitely a huge and, and, and diverse data set, but clearly the three most common units are the fathom, which is the arm span, uh, the cubit, which is the length of the forearm, and the hand span, which is basically the distance from your from tip of your thumb to one, the tip of one of the other fingers. What, what makes those units special? Why are they so ubiquitous? Well, that is a good question. I, I, I don't think we can answer this definitively, but I would say that uh, the upper body units are used especially because they're so close to the eyes. So it's kind of like convenient to use them as comparison, especially if you're using your hands to do other things meanwhile. So for instance, if you're sowing seeds, it makes sense to use the hand span, you know, with one hand to measure the distance between sowed seeds and, and then, you know, planting the seeds with the other. Or if you're measuring, for instance, rope or a fishing net, it just makes a lot of functional sense to use the fathom, the arm span to measure the slack item. 
So you and your colleagues published a paper in, in Science recently, uh, in early June 2023, uh, about these body-based measurements. And in it, you note that these systems are often described as primitive predecessors of standardized units, but you don't really subscribe to that idea. You know, why is that? Yeah, that's true. So if you, if you read these early histories of measurement, and especially like early ethnographies describing the measurement systems in other cultures, often the attitude of these past scientists has been quite dismissive of body-based units. So they've kind of had this idea that, well, you know, they have their own units, but we have the better ones, we have the standard ones. But when you really start looking closer into how these units have been used, I mean, quite often they're quite creative and, and purposeful, even, even functional in the kind of sense that we understand today as ergonomics. So often these body-based units are used by the person to measure the equipment, for instance, designed for themselves, which is something we find in the design of skis, kayaks, spears, bows, agricultural tools, and, of course, clothes. How do body-based measurements fit into the ergonomic design of, of, of a kayak, for example, or skis? Okay, so let's, let's start with the kayak, because that's one of my favorite examples. Um, so the kayak is one of those equipment that where it's really important that you fit in, kind of like a glove, so to speak. So it's, it's really important that you, your whole body, lower body is kind of connected to the kayak that you're controlling, because basically you'll want to have um, maximal maneuverability, but also you'll want to balance using your own, own body. And so you'll have to find this, you know, uh, balance between having a stable, stable kayak that's also maneuverable. And the way to do that is, of course, to design it in a way where your body fits in really snugly and tightly. And, and that's why, you know, if you go to one of your local kayak rentals and you just rent any kayak, it'll probably be quite poor. It'll fit you quite poorly. And that's why I think many people have a very negative first experience of kayaking where they have these very kind of uncomfortable equipment, but that's not how it should be. So the kayak was uh, traditionally designed using body-based units such as the fathom and the cubit especially. So typically kayaks would be about two and a half fathoms plus one cubit long. But of course, these vary by, by um, culture and by the purpose of the specific kayak. And also the kayak paddle was designed ergonomically. So it would be kind of of the, of the right length for the user. So... For instance, the traditional Greenlandic paddle was designed to be about a fathom plus one cubit long, which makes it over the right length for you. But also the width of the blade, which is quite narrow compared to European paddles, was used designing your own grip because of the simple fact that you'll actually want to be able to grip the paddle from both ends, unlike the European paddle. So, I mean, presumably these measurements, these body-based measurements could be translated into standardized units. So if I'm five foot seven inches tall, and I need a canoe for a five foot seven inches tall person, that could be translated into a body unit fairly easily. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what we do today, basically. Like, even if I go buy cross-country skis today, we'll probably take my length as a reference and then add 20 to 30 centimeters. But of course, we don't speak of my length. We speak of my length in centimeters. So what are, I mean, in some ways, we, we talk a little bit about, you know, um, ways that we've sort of mapped standardized units onto body-based units. But you've said in your paper that there's some examples of body-based measurements that successfully competed as body-based measurements, not as translated units, into um, well into the 20th century and even up to the present. Why have those, those systems remained competitive? Well, there's a couple of reasons. I mean... 
Well, you could still argue that ergonomics is an advantage, but of course you can transcribe that, so that's kind of debatable, I suppose. But the other other um, purposes are that, of course, you always carry your body with you. So, for instance, mobile hunter-gatherer peoples have found this, this of course, probably quite useful that they always have access to their measures and they're kind of, kind of quick and handy to get these rough ideas of, of, of the length of different objects or artifacts. But also in some motoric procedures, uh, body-based units are simply quite convenient. So if you think of, for instance, you might be sailing and you need, need to get an estimate of the length of the rope you're measuring. It's actually quite cumbersome to measure using a measuring tape or a measuring stick. But instead, if you if you take your fathom, you can basically keep on extending your arms and let the rope pass through your arms, and then you'll get a rough understanding of the length quite conveniently. So that's, that's also one kind of advantage, I think. And that's one reason why the fathom is so often associated with seafaring or fishing, actually. I mean, of course, today we have all kinds of technologies to do that for us as well. So, I was particularly interested in your analysis of, of body-based distance or time units. What are some examples of those units and what, are the, what advantages do they have over kilometers or miles? Yeah, so we also discussed these, um, what we call activity-based units of measure. So basically units of measure that are measured by using the bodily activities we, we engage in in our everyday lives. And... Quite often you'll find, for instance, people who live in rough mountainous terrain using distances such as two rests away, which, I mean, also they probably didn't have the means to measure those in, in terms of kilometers. But still, I mean, these, these units tend to kind of correct for environmental variability in the sense that if you're hiking in very rough terrain, of course, the kilometer isn't a great point of reference in that sense in terms of physical effort required. So one of my... Favorite examples here is the Nicobarese tradition of using coconut drinks as a unit of distance, basically, which of course makes sense. I mean, consider yourself in a canoe in the Indian Ocean with nothing to drink. You can't drink the salt water. So what's the most important variable that you need to measure from getting from A to B? Of course, you need to control for kind of hydration units. You need to measure that somehow. So in that sense, you know, the sea might be quite variable. You might have headwinds or tailwinds or, or waves or no waves. But it's the most important thing you, thing you want to know. Even today, like when I'm doing my hiking trips, that's the most important thing to consider is hydration. Yeah, I know that when I was looking into the site, I know that there's a beach in New Zealand that's called in English 90 Mile Beach. But its Maori name is Te Onera Tohi. Or which just means the long beach of Tohi, which is actually more accurate than the 90-mile beach because uh, the beach is, in fact, only 55 miles long. And the story goes that the Europeans who came to New Zealand, they knew their horses could walk 30 miles a day, so it took them three days to cross this beach, but they forgot or didn't know that the horses would move more slowly over sand. So they didn't sort of adjust. Maybe they, if they'd used body-based units, they wouldn't have miscalculated, and the, the beach would be now known as 55-mile beach or three-day walk beach. Well, that's interesting. I haven't, I haven't heard that, actually. So that kind of, I think that's a great example of this. Yeah. Given the usefulness of these body-based units, why did societies around the world, not just in, in the West, sort of move towards standardization? 
Yeah, so quite often the first standards were actually based on the human body, but it, it really seems like uh, these early standards start popping out wherever we find early empires. So whenever you have need to control a populace through, for instance, taxation or organize intercultural trade, of course, you'll need a common point of reference. And that's really when standards start popping up in, I mean, large scale when you have these uh, larger intercultural empires popping up. And yeah, much later, of course, the kind of real pivoting point was uh, the Industrial Revolution. So people like Frederick Taylor, the kind of Taylorist principal author, um, had this idea that these traditional rules of thumb should really uh, be done with and we should do, a, do away with them. So, of course, factories with their just-in-time workflows and precision instruments can't really accommodate body-based units. So that's definitely the kind of death blow in, in, in many contexts. Which is why you have to then translate the factory-made kayak or a factory-made kayak paddle into, into something that fits you. Yeah, yeah. And that's why, I mean, our kayaking club has about 30 kayak models, and I can comfortably say that one or two of them are actually good for me. So it's really led to this situation also where many of the kind of equipment we should be using don't really fit us. So I think definitely there's still room to kind of, I'm not saying revert back to old traditions, but get inspired by some old traditions and designing functional equipment for sure. So systems that need to be living happily alongside each other rather than, than competing or... Yeah, absolutely. That's that's how I'd, I'd put it. I mean... Even in, in some of my hobbies, I've noticed that these uh, body-based units are still being used. Like I just bought a bicycle in spring and, and when I bought the bicycle, they took my inseam length, which is like from the foot to the ground, basically, and, and deciding the right size of the bike frame. I still make my own traditional kayak paddles using my own body as a reference. I mean, this, this kind of stuff really works. But of course, it does. it's like it takes nothing away from standardized systems. Yes, and it's clear that you, you're not advocating for standardized units to go away. Yeah, you know, I'm a very happy user of the SI system and the metric system here in Finland, so I have absolutely nothing against that. So that's also, it seems to be one, one misunderstanding that people have had from our paper that we'd somehow argue against standardization, which is absolutely not the case. I mean, we couldn't do our science without standardization, basically. So, Ropa, I hope our discussion has convinced listeners out there that this research is on body-based units is interesting. Before we finish, I want to move on to what's maybe a deeper question. You know, why is this research important? Why is it important we preserve the knowledge of these units and how they've been used either in the past or in, in current cultures today? Well, first of all, just in terms of kind of pure science, I think... If we're serious about understanding technological evolution or cultural evolution, we will want to understand how humans perceive the world around them. And of course, there's a lot of cultural uh, variability in how people have kind of made sense of the world around them. And of course, units of measure have been absolutely key to that. So instead of having a kind of dismissive attitude, I think we should have this curiosity about you know how people figured out their everyday lives in the past and, and still in prison societies. But also in terms of like societal relevance, I think the notion that people around the world and many traditional and indigenous knowledge frameworks have been thinking about things like ergonomics for centuries. And I think people today think of ergonomics like as quite a recent invention, perhaps. So in that sense, 
to me, there's also this idea of maybe we could do a better job today and, and the Western industrial society is of, of um, accommodating different sizes of bodies and, and the design of everyday artifacts. Ropa Karunen, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Rope Karinen in conversation with Margaret Harris. Rope and colleagues published their paper in the journal Science, and it's called Body-Based Units of Measurement in Cultural Evolution. On the 6th of August, 1945, the world changed forever when an atomic bomb was detonated over the Japanese city of Hiroshima. A second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki three days later, and the two attacks are believed to have killed as many as 226,000 people, most of whom were civilians. Since then, we have seen nuclear proliferation, detente, and some success at disarmament. Thankfully, nuclear weapons have not been used since Nagasaki, but the specter of nuclear war still hangs over humanity. Perhaps that's why the film Oppenheimer has been the unexpected hit of the summer. It's a biopic about the American physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer, who is often referred to as the father of the atomic bomb. I've seen the film, as has my physics world colleague Mateen Durrani, and here are our thoughts on it. So, Mateen, what did you think of the of this physics blockbuster that is Oppenheimer? Well, I saw, I'm on holiday at the moment while I'm working, and I saw it in Munich in a cinema um, in the original English version. And it was packed out. I have to say, you know, all the accounts of people I've heard who've gone to see the film have said all the cinemas have been really full. So it's obviously hit some nerve with people, this film. It sounds very, very popular. Um, and you know me, Hamish, I'm not a huge film goer. And, you know, the idea of sitting there for three hours always is a bit daunting. But, you know, I think there was only once that I looked at my watch uh, through that three hours. So, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. And you know, as a physicist, you know, my biggest concern was that the whole film would be completely mangled historically, and it's not. I mean, there are a few errors that, you know, might irritate some people, but mostly it's accurate, which I thought was great. Um, and it would have been horrible if it had been completely a sort of a mockery of what actually happened. So that was, that was reassuring that it, it was accurate. And, you know, that was because Christopher Nolan, the director, based it on American Prometheus, which is, you know, a great book that we reviewed when it came out in 2005. And I think that book inspired him and he's followed pretty closely the events in that book, which won a Pulitzer Prize. So it's not just any book. It's a very, very good book. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was a bit light on the physics, but I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I think if there was lots of sort of really hardcore physics in the film, it, it, it would have turned off a lot of the audience. And yeah, I have to say my, my experience here in Bristol was the same. We decided that we wanted to go see it on a rainy Sunday afternoon. And the first few first two cinemas that we checked were completely sold out. And the one where we managed to get tickets 
seats. Um, almost all of the seats were were, were taken. Um, and the, the, I mean, the other really interesting thing <laughs> from a personal point of view, I went, um, you know, I went with my wife and my 21 year old son. And I think this is, the, you know, the first time in <laughs> probably five years that I've gone to see a film with my son. And, and he was really keen on going to see it. He's not a, a physicist. Um, and he was saying that, you know, lots of his friends have seen it, um, you know, so lots of 21 year olds in Bristol are going out to see Oppenheimer. And, you know, there were mixed reviews. Some of them really liked it. Um, some of them didn't. But um, yeah, I mean, I've been really gobsmacked by the by the popularity. And the, the, the thing that I find that, you know, the funniest and, and possibly the, the most inconceivable aspect of the of the. Um, of the Oppenheimer phenomenon is how it's been sort of twinned up with Barbie, you know, the other big film of the summer. And, you know, people talking about, um, is it Barbenheimer? Um, you know, this mashup of the two films, one about, uh, um, you know, a, a, a physicist who, who built um, atomic bombs and another one about a, you know, sort of plastic doll. I just find it incredible. You know, even the New Yorker had a lovely image sort of showing Oppenheimer smoking a pipe with a nuclear explosion coming out of it in the background and Barbie and Ken in their pink car in the foreground. I mean, it, it, you know, if I had told you uh, a year ago that, um, you know, that Barbie and J. Robert Oppenheimer would be mashed up together in popular culture, you you would have thought I was crazy, wouldn't you? Yeah, it's funny because you would have thought one might have eclipsed the other, but somehow they're seen as this joint phenomenon and, um, you know, both sort of high and low culture, if you like, are sort of fused. But, you know, talking about your son, did he know who all the physicists were in the film. For, for me, as you know, me and you, Hamish, we're sort of physics nerds. And it was really fun just to see, you know, Ken Kenneth Branagh play um, Hans Bethe, was it, who pops up at Los Alamos. And then, oh, no, he played Niels Bohr, I think. But, you know, it was great to see all these people. I mean, did your son know, know who all these people were? Because I, I, for me, that was the fun thing. I mean, who'd have imagined... Edward Teller, Isidore Rabi, Richard Feynman, Hans Bethe, Patrick Blackett would all be in a Hollywood epic. You know, you would never imagine that. Yeah. It, I, yeah. That was another incredible thing about it. Again, you know, all these Nobel Prize winning physicists on the screen, many of whom were um, uh, portrayed by A-list actors. You know, that was another another really interesting thing about the film. And I suppose it also illustrated, you know, the fact that the Man Manhattan Project was a was really a huge collaboration between, you know, some of the greatest um, minds um, uh, on the planet um, at the time. So, um, yeah, that I, I really enjoyed that. And, you know, I enjoyed how the film, it, it was sort of couched in in two hearings, you know, one hearing where Oppenheimer is um, is, you know, basically basically on trial for his, you know, sort of pacifism um, that that he uh, adopted after the war. And, um, you know, with the threat of, of losing his security clearance. And then another um, hearing a few years on about, uh, is it L Louis Strauss? But it's not pronounced Strauss, is it? It's, how does he pronounce it? Yeah, it's something a bit different, wasn't it? Yeah. Strauss or something Strauss. like that. Yeah. And, um, and, and him being questioned um, about his role in, um, 
in in removing. Uh, actually, I shouldn't I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't. I've I've just uh, that was a spoiler alert. His a role his role in that hearing with Oppenheimer, and I thought that was a really interesting way to um, you, you know to to sort of present the history and the politics. Um, I mean, did you think that that worked? The those sort of dual hearings plus the 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 sort of dramatization of what went on at Los Alamos. I mean, it made it quite a complex film, and that's one of the reasons it was three hours because you have the whole thing after the war with the, with the you know the hearing and then the subsequent um, affair you know thing that went on later with the sort of Senate hearings. Um, I mean, it was quite complicated and. Um, you know, but I thought, you know, the, the whole question of, you know, the moral dilemma of, you know, the bomb and, you know, the, the whole team got very excited about building a bomb. But, you know, how much did they really think of whether it would be used? Did they think about the deaths that it would cause? Did they have moral doubts about it? I mean, those were touched on, but I'm sure for a lot of the physicists involved, you know, it was the excitement of working on a project. And maybe they didn't think about the consequences. And of course, once they built the bomb, you know, it was kind of taken out of their hands. And it was really that that's the dilemma of the film. Did Oppenheimer really think about the impacts of what he was doing and what 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 doubts did he have? And I think it, you know, did quite a good job of that. Um, but, yeah, you know, you, there was the whole question of, you know, why did the bombs get dropped on those two cities and why not other ones? Well, why did they have two bombs? Why not just do one? And go look. If you don't surrender to the Japanese, we'll we'll drop another one. They just dropped a second one. Um, and of course, the original reason was that for, you know to counteract the Nazi threat. They didn't have a bomb. And the whole questions about Heisenberg and did he know the Germans didn't have a bomb, or did he deliberately try to slow down progress, or did you know in the end they didn't have a bomb? So the original rationale wasn't even there. Um, so, you know, it, it does a pretty good job of get, getting to the bottom of a lot of these issues. I mean, they, it could have been maybe deeper to some extent, but, you know, in three hours, I think it was pretty covered most of the issues at stake pretty well, I think. Yeah, there, there, there was a very powerful scene, wasn't there, where um, Oppenheimer went to see Harry Truman, the president of, of the United States at the time. And I suppose the person who made the decision to drop the bomb and, um, you know, uh, interestingly, you know, sort of Truman made it very clear that um, Oppenheimer only developed the bomb. You know, Truman made the important decision um, to drop it. And, um, you, you know, although that that seemed like a very harsh um, conclusion uh, or a harsh statement that Truman made, um, he, 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 it was right, wasn't it? I mean, it wasn't Oppenheimer's decision to um, to drop the bomb, um, and, uh, and and I, I thought that was a really interesting interesting scene that that sort of um, solidified my yeah. understanding of uh, yeah. of Oppenheimer. But he sort of wheedled out. I think kind of Oppenheimer sort of wheedled out of it. Oh, well, I've got this bomb, but it's not my decision whether it's used. But of course, you know, you made it. So whether or not you took the decision, you knew probably it would be used, and presumably you were quite happy to see it used maybe that was the point of the exercise to build a bomb you don't build a bomb and not use it well initially you didn't you know arms race controls ch changed all that mm. but um yeah you know i thought you know i enjoyed it did you um what about the people you were with did that did they did they enjoy it did they um 
Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, both 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 um people that I were with that that I was with really enjoyed it. Um I think the audience enjoyed it. Nobody I didn't notice anybody walking out. Um it was a very long film. I mean, we were near the front because we got our tickets very late. But um yeah, I think I think people were 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 very interested and and very appreciative of it. Uh I mean, the one thing, you know, we talked about all these Nobel Prize winners being um portrayed in the film. And I was thinking, well, you know, what's the next physics blockbuster going to be? I mean, what, you know, do you have any thoughts on that, Mateen? What, what, you know, the life of, of what physicist would you like to see portrayed by Hollywood A-listers in the future? Have you, have you given that any thought? Well, of course, one of the criticisms of the film is there are no women in it or no female physicists. And, you know, there's plenty of opportunity for doing something about Lisa Meitner, who, you know, helped discover, you know, some of the key processes in the in the late 30s. In fact, you know, there's a whole story about she should have won the Nobel Prize and didn't. So, you know, the fact the lack of female physicists in the film um, it is a kind of criticism. But then, you know, it was historically accurate and, and you know, their role was perhaps, you know, overlooked and therefore not part of the historical record. Um, I mean, the one person I always think was, you know, we talked about him earlier this year was Erwin Schrödinger. And, you know, he's a very controversial character. Um, and I think that would make a great film, a great biopic of him. You know, what role did he play in Nazi Germany? Then he came to Oxford and he went to Ireland. He had his very complicated and a personal life that you know is coming to quite a bit of criticism so i think he would be very very interesting um i think there's a lot of raw material there for a sort of a, re a really interesting film I, i'd say you'd like to see that um but coming back to oppenheimer i think one of the weaknesses the one thing that i didn't like was the portrayal of albert einstein i think he was sort of shoehorned in rather unsatisfactorily and i don't think it the encounters that he had were quite like that and also i couldn't help i said this to you before hamish um it was he was played by tom conti and i remember him in the 1980s rom-com shirley valentine where he played <laughs> greek boatman costas and i just couldn't help thinking he looked exactly like tom conti looked exactly like costas in that film as he did with einstein this sort of crumpled guy in a jumper looking uh, slightly disheveled and i just <laughs> couldn't i don't know if anyone in the audience made that connection but yeah i could i just couldn't help thinking of shirley valentine and the poor, the, poor the tom conti typecast <laughs> yeah. oh well you know for me you know, bringing back uh, you know this the, the idea of making a film about lisa meitner i i think that would be a really interesting um uh sort of parallel story, really, because, you know, she she um, was a co-discoverer of, of nuclear fission, which ultimately led to the development of the bomb. And the incredible thing is that, you know, that work was done just before the Second World War. And it's incredible to think that, you know, they went from discovering fission, I think in 1938, to, to creating a bomb um, just a few years later. Um, I, I think, you know, and, and Meitner not getting the credit, she, she was nominated for the Chemistry and Physics Nobel Prizes many times, um, never won, um, which is something I think that's very controversial. She, uh, she was Jewish, and, she, and so she had the, the horrible experience of um, fleeing the Nazis uh, in the run-up to the, um, the Second World War. And f famously, I believe she turned down an opportunity to work on the Manhattan Project 
um, saying that she wasn't, well, saying in retrospect, I, supp I suppose, that she wasn't interested in uh, developing bombs, um, but then weirdly became a bit of a celebrity after the bombs were dropped because, um, you know, people became aware of the fact that it was her, it was her um, work in physics and chemistry that made the bombs possible. So yeah, my, my vote would be for, for Lisa Meitner. But, you know, as you say, there's lots of, of really interesting stories out there in physics. Um, and let's hope that Hollywood tells more of them because Oppenheimer was, was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. And um, it sounds like most, most editors on Physics World enjoyed it as well. The other person I was thinking about, a good biopic was on the Manhattan Project, was Joseph Rodblatt, who ended up winning the Nobel Peace Prize in 95, along with the, the Pugwash Peace Organization. Of course, he was one of the few physicists who actually left the bomb project, having joined it, realizing, you know, what, what the consequences would be. And then he ended up having a very successful career in medical physics in, in London. So I think exploring, you know, what motivated him would, would be fascinating as well. Um, but yeah, as you say, lo lots of stories with, and I think that era was just, you know, the sort of great era of physics with some, you know, great, great stories that, you know, would worthy of, worthy of a film, I think, you know, it'd be great to see some of those people mentioned. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was a very, uh, it was an era of transition, wasn't it? And I think that was reflected in the film because um, the, you know, the film made a point of, of, of noting that Oppenheimer, an American physicist, he was born in New York City, traveled to Europe when he was very, when he was young to work with, um, you know, some of the greats of, uh, of quantum mechanics, the pioneers of quantum mechanics, because quantum mechanics was very much a, a European thing. Um, and then he came back to the U.S. And at that time, uh, you know, I suppose the U.S. was on the ascendancy in terms of physics. Um, and you had people like uh, Lawrence in California, um, you know, doing some fantastic work. And, and Oppenheimer um, worked with Lawrence. So I think, you know, it, it, it showed a, a, a fascinating time in the history of physics where you had this transition um, from classical mechanics to quantum mechanics. You had this transition from Europe to the United States. Um, you know, a very rich time in the history of physics. And I, I thought that that was captured very well in, um, in the film. Uh, you, you know, as opposed to, 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 to Oppenheimer's detriment, his, uh, you know, travel to, to Europe was, was taken as a mark against him. <laughs> um, you know, why would you want to go to Europe when you could study physics in the United States? But he made the point that, you know, that's where all the excitement was, at least, um, you know, before the Second World War when he was, when he was starting out as a physicist. He went to Göttingen, Germany, which, of course, was the sort of center of many German physicists, much of German physics, and was, you know, a place that, you know, I think for Americans, a stint as a postdoc in Europe was seen as an essential part of your um, furthering of your education and your, your uh, you know, physics, culture and background, getting to know some of the greats who were in Europe at the time. So, yeah, but as you say, that was sort of counted against him. And in the, in the sort of hearing, it was quest you kept being questioned why, why he'd gone there. Um, so, yeah, but yeah, you know, really enjoyed the film. I, I gave it four stars. You gave it five, I think. Yeah, yeah, I did. I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, you know, I have to say I went to see Barbie the week before and um, I enjoyed Barbie, but I thought 
Oppenheimer was better. Actually, there, there's there's one really strange scene in, in the film that, that's just come to mind, talking about Oppenheimer's exploits in Europe. Did he really try to poison Patrick Blackett? That's the that sort of the feeling that I got from the film. That he that he did he inject an apple with cyanide, leave it on Patrick Blackett's desk, and then some other famous physicist was about to eat it. <laughs> that seems a bit crazy to me. Andrew Robinson, who's one of our regular book reviewers, and uh, he, he wrote to us saying that, you know, that that is actually um, not correct. Um, okay. <laughs> so what Andrew Robinson said, it was actually Ernest Rutherford, you know, the great New Zealand physicist, not Patrick Blackett, who introduced Oppenheimer to Niels Bohr. So I think that that was, so he basically swapped Blackett for Rutherford. I think he got that wrong. So there was this business of the poison apple, Um but yeah, it was it was mixed up, and um, so yeah, that that was an error. So, that, so there really was a poisoned apple. Yeah, that, there, there was. Oppenheimer tried to kill Rutherford, not Blackett, and well, I think no, almost I think killed Niels Bohr. The poison apple was meant for Blackett. I'm getting okay. a bit confused now about what happened, but yeah, I think that apple scene is not right. I may have got that wrong, but certainly it's not correct in the film. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that I thought I thought that that was an extraordinary scene. Um, among and it's many. a bit odd because it's right at the start, isn't it? So you know, why, why make this sort of slightly confusing error in the film? But there, there was something with an apple. There was a poisoning, and you know that that it's uh, it that at least was correct when he was at Cambridge. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, I enjoyed the film. It sounds like you enjoyed it. So, um, dear listener, if you haven't had a chance to uh, to watch it, by all means go out and see it. I think you'll really enjoy it. Thanks, my team. Thanks, Amos. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Ropa Karanen, Margaret Harris, and Bettine Durrani for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week when Mateen will be in conversation with Australia's chief scientist, Kathy Foley. They'll be chatting about that country's quantum strategy. In the meantime, do listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, which focuses on the recent observation of a gravitational wave background by the Nanograv Collaboration. Host Andrew Glester is joined by the nanograv astronomer Cherry Ng to explore how the gravitational waves were detected and what the observation reveals about supermassive black holes. That episode is called Our Universe is Humming with Gravitational Waves, and you can find it on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.